The Sunday Baroque podcast is made possible by WSHU and the Friends of Sunday Baroque. You can find out more about the Friends of Sunday Baroque and find out how to become one yourself by visiting our website, sundaybaroque.org, under the Contact tab. Violinist Rachel Podger is an expert in playing music from the Baroque and classical music periods. Her long list of awards and accomplishments include being the first woman to be awarded the prestigious Royal Academy of Music Cone Foundation Bach Prize and being named Gramophone Artist of the Year in 2018. The British violinist is also founder and artistic director of Brecon Baroque Festival. Rachel Podger joins me on Zoom to talk about her life in music. Hello. Hello. Oh, it's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much. Now, you founded the Brecon Baroque Festival in Wales in 2006. How did you choose this location and, and what are some of the special characteristics of the area? Yeah, well, it's it's a lovely old Georgian town and uh, there was a festival there already, which had some musical elements, but it was mainly a kind of uh, talk, talk and walk and and uh, kind of look at look at the town, get to know the town kind of festival. And it was mainly kind of for locals. Um, and there was actually, I just have to tell you about this very hilarious thing that used to happen during that festival. There was this this uh, race with a sedan chair, you know, one of those those old chairs that, that you have to, you know, four people have to hold and that you have to run along with someone sitting mm-hmm. inside. And so there was a race through the town, which is hilarious. And I, I unfortunately never witnessed this myself. <laughs> but part of the race was they had to kind of stop at, at one point and get out of the sedan chair and uh, butter themselves and put cream and, and jam on a, on a particularly beautiful scone and, of course, a Welsh cake, which are these kind of flat little cakes. If you've never had one, you have to try them. They're delicious. Um, so, and they had to eat that as part of the race and then get back in the chair and then carry on. So it was that kind of festival. And it was, it was very sweet, very attractive. Um, and I was approached by uh, one of the musicians involved in the festival who I knew from working in London, a lovely oboist called Sophia McKenna. And she said, hey, Rachel, you're moving to the area. How about it? You know, do you want to get involved? And, and so it, it came at a really good time. I mean, our children were really young, um, but actually I was thinking, okay, it'd be quite nice to do something kind of in the local area rather than all the flitting around. You know, I've been mm-hmm. doing that for, for, for some years already, maybe 15 years or something before I had kids. And um, I, I, you know, I've met lots of other festivals and lots of promoters, of course, along the way. And you kind of see how, how festivals work and, and how they're, um, kind of created what what the thought the thoughts behind them and you know you just learn along the way you see so much and you, you take kind of mental notes and you see what works and what maybe doesn't work so well and uh, so I was I think I was kind of ready to embark on, on the adventure myself so mm. um, actually did it together with my partner at the time and it worked out really well because he was teaching a lot of local kids and also young adults so the last concert in the festival and it, it has remained so became this kind of jamboree of, of just bubbling fun of, of a whole load of locals joining in um, mm. so we basically had we made up this kind of festival orchestra Breckenbrock festival orchestra we, we call it um and so the the modern instrument players they they tune their instruments down before 
415. Wow. And uh, I handed out a whole load of Baroque bows and said, hey, try this. It's much easier to do string crossings and short notes and, and gesture and phrasing and stuff. Um, and then a whole load of my students, current students and ex-students came along. So it became a lovely kind of, it kind of took on its own life in a way. It became a, a little community in itself, which yeah. was really joyful and yeah. very joyful. That's always the last concert. And that kind of developed right at the beginning of the festival and then the other kind of slots of the festival which have become um just a kind of just regular features of it mm-hmm. then developed over time so we always have the first concert the, the first main concert in the cathedral which is a very beautiful place in Brecon. Mm-hmm. um if you're ever over in wales then you you need to definitely you know make sure that you fit that into your to your schedule um it's a very beautiful place and uh, feels kind of sacred, you know, it's just one of mm-hmm. those sacred ancient sites. Mm. Um, and so we, we have a vocal program always on the, on the Friday night. Mm. This year it was Books to Huda Membra Yizu Nostri, which Ooh. is the most beautiful piece. Um, it's in. It's basically kind of seven cantatas, mm-hmm. um, and each cantata uh, uh, focuses on one part of the body of Christ, mm-hmm. and of course the, the heart features, which has got the gambas. It's got six gam- uh, viola de gambas in mm-hmm. that. Just the most beautiful music. Mm-hmm. It's very very stirring. You know, it's very kind of meditative, um, and. Uh, yeah, it's very thought-provoking. It's just exquisitely beautiful, I must say. Um, and there's there's also uh, feet and, and legs. And actually, um, the, the part that I found most significant this time around was the knees, because Buxtehude instructs the string players to play with a kind of bow vibrato, like a kind of tremolo, kind of wah, 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 wah. Oh. He just writes the the harmonies he just writes them in in kind of regular notes and then he says okay you need to kind of do this mm. tremolo in time mm. and you can just imagine the kind of shaking of the knees yeah. it's it feels very uh physical you yeah. know i was gonna say visceral it, yeah 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 it was, wow. it was very meaningful and hmm. um, so that that's the, the um the friday night is this kind of vocal um program and then on uh, the Saturday night we kind of moved to the local theatre which is basically a kind of uh, a community theatre in the area it has all the facilities that you need mm-hmm. um, might not have the best sound but we we create a, a kind of baroque atmosphere in there somehow with all of our instruments and, and a kind of nice backdrop this year we had a, the backdrop of um, of the town of Lübeck oh. in the 17th century because uh, part of the theme was actually uh, because we called it walk with Bach and uh, we were focusing on the young Bach uh, in 1705 you know when he walked from Arnstadt to Lübeck um, which was a very long journey like Mm. 300 miles I think it was or 250 miles and it took him a long time took him like three weeks and of course he stayed there for some time he he overstayed Mm. he got into trouble when he got back (laughs) because <laughs> he enjoyed his time there because he went to visit Buxtehude and then the program was all about um well J.S. Bach was at the center of it and then around him were all these other composers who either influenced him or who were related to him or who were students of his so we had two of each so we had two cousins 
oh. sweet by, by two cousins and then we had two of of his kind of mentors so the only non johan was dietrich buxtehude but then there was johan Kell, whose music he would have copied out when he was a boy when he was staying with this his brother mm-hmm. you know there's that that lovely kind of story of him getting up at night you know and, and i remember having a um a reading book when i was a um, a little girl about Bach. I, I think it was actually about famous composers. And there was one about Bach that I'd always stare at. And there was this really evocative mm-hmm. image of him as a little boy uh, sitting uh, kind of on the floor, copying out mu- old music. And you could see the kind of manuscript. And I was really kind of into that. I, I thought, wow, that looks so, so clever and so difficult to read. And then you'd see the kind of the moonlight coming in through the window. <laughs> so you could tell that it was at night, right. you know. And I remember thinking, oh, that must can't, can't have been very good for his for his eyes because I already knew at the time that he he went blind. You know, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thinking, things things you think uh, about when you're when you're little. Yeah, but yeah. Um, so that that picture is kind of I don't know that's kind of stayed with me of him kind of copying out all this this ancient wisdom from, from older composers. And so I thought we'd have a couple of them. Um, and then we had pieces by two of his students, also Johans. So Johann Gottlieb Goldberg of the, the famous Goldberg Variations, mm-hmm. a very beautiful trio sonata, but very chromatic. It's like he was actually it felt a little bit like he was trying very hard to be like his teacher. Mm. <laughs> and then um, the other one was um, Johann Kaspar. Um, where, where were we? Yeah, Johann Kaspar Krebs, who, who was um, one of J.S. Bach's favorite students. And there's actually, there's a little pun in there that, that Bach made. Apparently he wrote in the letter to, to, to someone that, um, that Krebs, uh, which means crayfish, yeah? Oh. Der, der, der Krebs ist um, der Beste in, in dem Bach. Um, I, I might have to find the, the actual the actual quote for you, so so I can quote that proper. I I, I just don't have that ex- the exact wording in, in my head right now. Mm. But basically, he's saying um, this crayfish is the best in my brook because oh. Bach, oh, yeah. Bach means brook, right? Yeah, and yeah. and kids is crayfish. So that was his way of saying you know, he's my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was very clever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was the program on the Saturday, and then um, so I'm taking you right through the whole festival. But it's just oh. it's still completely everything is still in my system. It's still in my head. You know. Sure. Um, and then on Sunday we had we always have a, have a, a kind of guest slot. So we had this fantastic group called the Society for Strange and Ancient Instruments. Oh. And they brought a program which. I reckon no one will ever have seen before. So there were four trumpet marinas. Oh. Now, that is an instrument. It's it's a very long, it looks a little bit like an alp horn, and it rests on the floor, and you, you support it by putting it on your shoulder. And it's basically, it's a kind of wooden box, but, but quite a narrow box. And it has one string, and there's a peg box at the top with one peg. Uh-huh. And you play it with the bow and you change the pitch by basically just finding harmonics on the string. Whew. And it has a really kind of otherworldly sound to it. Yeah, yeah. And it's 
I mean, it's called trumpet marina, but it, it doesn't, obviously it doesn't sound like a trumpet. You, you can tell it's a string instrument, but it's got a slightly funny kind of raspy sound. Mm -hmm. So it actually sounds a little bit like a brass instrument. It's mm -hmm. so intriguing. Now, yeah. wasn't um, Castrucci, wasn't he one that sort of used that instrument in some yes. music? Yeah, yes, yeah. well, it, it was kind of, it was more widely used than, mm -hmm. than we think. And apparently it was played by nuns who weren't allowed to play brass, brass instruments. Oh, wow. So um, I don't know where, what the appeal particularly was of brass instruments, maybe to, to, to kind of, you know, for the glory of God, because it's yeah. such a kind of joyful sound yeah, yeah. Um, at festive times. And they weren't allowed to play these, maybe it was a little uncouth. Yeah. Um, so they resorted to playing these instruments, wow. which sound a little bit like like brass instruments. So that that was a, a complete spectacle. Wow. And we also had this lovely dancer actor with frock coat and storytelling and everything who was prancing around and and uh, sometimes would dance uh, a rigodon or a courant. Or, so it was extremely entertaining. Wow. Wow. Really a multimedia too, you know, having the dance and the interesting yes. visuals of the instruments, very um, visually appealing as well as musically. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, it was, uh, it was very appealing. And I think the audience was slightly flummoxed at the beginning, <laughs> you know, because the, the, the concert opened with, with the four of these, these oh. players playing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, no introduction at first. That came later and all the explanations <laughs> and everything about the instruments. But at first, I think people were thinking, uh, what is this? Is this a joke? Is it meant to sound like that? Well, <laughs> what, are the, what are those funny, raspy sounds? And, and so it was very funny. I think people were, were taken off guard. You know, they, they weren't quite sure whether to giggle or to, to be shocked. That's great, though. I mean, that is, to me, that is what art should be right it shouldn't be predictable it should surprise and startle <laughs> i so agree and that's yeah. of course what what the best composers do yeah don't they they, yeah. they shock with their interrupt whether it's an interrupted cadence or whether it's right you know just something unexpected it's so much part of the rhetorical language of course yeah and i mean ingenious isn't doing the same thing everyone else has done or is doing it's doing something different <laughs> Exactly. That's what makes it genius. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to double back a little bit because I, I'm so glad you talked about your book as a little girl because I am very curious to know how you found your way to Baroque violin and Baroque music. Uh, I, I'm guessing that that's not how you started in music. Most most people start on a modern instrument. Was it was it violin? And how did how did you find your way into into this very particular style? Yes, well, yes, so I, I learned um, Suzuki, the Suzuki method. Oh, I started when I was about five and I was learning along with my brother, two years older. So we, we kind of have our sessions after school together right. every day. And my mother would, uh, who actually plays the cello, she, she, was, she never became a professional musician, but she, she might well as have been because she was one of those amazing kind of multi-instrumentalist and and singer kind of musicians and she she ran choirs and and had all sorts of groups and people would come around and have guitar lessons or cello lessons or recorder oh. lessons or it seemed like she could wow. just 
about play everything. My, my father also very musical. He was um, a choral scholar at King's College Cambridge oh. as a boy and then later on as an a clerk, as a tenor. And they both still have very beautiful voices, still making lots of music. Wow. <laughs> um, and so I grew up in that kind of environment um, and uh, it, it was completely natural that my brother and I, Julian and I would play instruments and sing. Mm -hmm. And since my, my father's in the church, we would often perform together as a family in services, not just on feast days, but just, uh, you know, to, to uh, try something out or to make the service more beautiful or, or something at the end when people were having their, their tea and coffee after, there, there'd always be something going on and we kind of practice it on the Saturday night. So Saturday night was not really party night for, for me ever. Mm -hmm. It was always... <laughs> Gig night. <laughs> which is fine, which is fine. Um, that came later, maybe. Um, but we'd, we'd be, um, you know, looking at repertoire and saying, okay, let's let's put this, dad would be planning, you know, okay, let's put this chorale prelude in here and do that there. And So I was kind of in on all of that kind of programming from a very early age. It was just a, you know, part of life, kind of what you did. So mm -hmm. that never really changed because mm -hmm. I'm still doing that now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when you kind of grow up with something like that, it doesn't become uh, something that is, uh, uh, you know, on, on the outside, external or just on the outside of life that you need to step into. It's just so much part of you. It's like having an apprenticeship, you know, like mm -hmm. in the old days, how, how it would have been, I guess. And so I feel very fortunate that I had that kind of upbringing. Yeah. And I also sang in choirs. I sang a lot, actually. There was one point when I thought I might pursue singing rather than, violin huh. just because it yeah it was uh it, it, it was very much part of my life and it was very natural to me and and I was doing lots of concerts as well and um but somehow the, the violin won in the end yeah yeah <laughs> wow thank goodness <laughs> yeah yeah. You know, yeah yeah I hope so I hope I hope it was the right choice you oh, never know yeah. I still sing I still yeah. sing um, but yeah, with the with all the kind of early music stuff. So early music, of course, was also very much part of my early life, just because it lent itself to our family, because the family of four. Mm -hmm. um, so we'd often play trio sonatas because dad played keyboard, mum played cello, June and mm -hmm. I played violins. You know, it's Perfect. a given. Yeah. Trio sonatas, plenty mm -hmm. of them. Um, so I grew up with that repertoire rather than the kind of string quartet repertoire, mm -hmm. which a lot of string players grew up with, especially violinists, of right. course. I kind of came later on uh, when I was at college, really. Um, and also I grew up with this kind of sense of church music, really, and polyphony, of course. Mm -hmm. And Bach is very much a big part of that with the cantatas. Yeah. So I was just very familiar with all of that. And it's, it seemed very natural to, to then kind of embrace also the, the methods and the, the thinking behind it. Mm -hmm. Now, that was kind of very instinctive at first. But then I became more interested just, just when I was, you know, in my teens, when I started to question things in a different way, the way you do. And I questioned my violin teacher, who was from the Russian school. Oh. And I used to ask him, you know, when we were doing some solo bar, I used to ask him, ask him about, uh, you know, okay, so why is this piece, why do you want me to start that with an up bow bit? Because isn't that an emphasis there? And don't I need to, you know, show this figure and this gesture? So I, ha I had these ideas. And, and he, I remember him looking at me thinking, ah, oh, 
Okay, so you've been infected by this early music. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I didn't even know what that was at the time because wow. it was. It just seemed very, uh, uh, yeah, just a natural thing to do, to, to want to find out, you know, and mm-hmm. to, to see where it came from um, and what the actual musical language was of that particular piece, whether it was Vinyavsky or, or, or Spohr or whether it was Mozart or Bach or, or anything else. Um, and then I just went along in that vein a little bit more, and possibly because he said, ah, you've been infected. And I thought, ah, okay. <laughs> so this early music movement. So, so I started, you know, digging in this. And then we were living in Germany at the time because my mother is German. And I was also singing in a Lutheran church choir, so I was hearing a lot of Bach. And the the music director there would, would often get the, the Staatstheater Opernorchester, which was the, the local kind of uh, opera orchestra, to come along and um, support us mm-hmm. and, and play along. And, and I remember thinking, oh, okay, so, hmm, this, this sounds like, this doesn't sound like Bach to me, this sounds like Brahms or Tchaikovsky, you know, they're using a lot of sound, because of course, you know, it's a modern orchestra, mm-hmm. lots of vibrato, and, you know, the, these kind of questions just crept in. And then I got to know Musica Antica Köln, found out Google and started going to concerts. There was, there was this lovely series in Kassel called Targeter Musik. And so I started going to those and I remember hearing all sorts of music that I've never heard before. Hmm. Kind of Renaissance and, and also some medieval, um, but especially kind of the, the high Baroque, pieces that and it wasn't just the actual repertoire of course the way they were playing mm. so I remember plucking up the courage and going up after a concert and just kind of asking you know a few really dumb questions I would have thought <laughs> but you gotta start somewhere right right of course <laughs> no dumb questions <laughs> there is no such thing um, <laughs> I know Google was just so kind just so sweet and just pointed me in a few you know, a few directions and gave me a CD. Wow. Well, actually, no, it was before CDs. What yeah. did he give me? He gave me a tape or something. This is this is a long time ago. <laughs> um, or maybe it was an LP. So I can't remember <laughs> now. But, but he, he, he gave me some, some help. And um, I then took that to my violin lesson with my Russian teacher. And that was kind of the beginning of the end. <laughs> it wasn't really... His plan for me, he wanted me to go and do competitions and win yeah. prizes and stuff on, with modern repertoire, you know, romantic repertoire, romantic yeah. concertos and things. And I wasn't particularly interested in following that kind of path. Yeah. Um, I, I was more interested in making music uh, in a kind of consort situation, you know, chamber music, mm-hmm. um, because I guess I'd done that a lot as a singer as well and just in choirs and, and it just was very natural rather than being a, a kind of apart from a group you know as a soloist which is which can be really fun sure. um it's it's just a very different mentality isn't it yeah when you're out there doing concerto I was, I was doing one the other day I was doing a Mozart concerto and you are kind of of course the soloist because that's it's just kind of starting to happen at that time isn't it because right. with Bach concertos you're very much part of the texture and you're kind of just part of the, the woven tapestry just another right. voice right and you're in a way uh you're, you're just part of en- enriching the the whole language um but then with Mozart you are already you know you are 
there's a little bit of a diva thing coming in, especially when you're doing all your Einganger and your cadenzas and things. And you can see how that then develops. And that, that's kind of already enough for me. But if you see what I mean from, from the mentality point of view, but then going ahead and um, in time and then doing, I mean, there's so much beautiful music and it's, it's amazing to, uh, to delve into that repertoire, but uh, to do that your whole life long, I don't, I already knew then instinctively that wasn't really the path for me to be playing Tchaikovsky. So tell me about your most important tool of your trade. Tell me about your, your instruments, your actual violins. Oh, yes. Um, so I, I'm very lucky to have um, uh, uh, an Italian instrument from Genoa from 1739, uh, made by Pasarini, who's not very well known at all, uh, which it was very much in my favor when I actually purchased it, because, oh. of course, in an unnamed mm-hmm. uh, or, or, well, not, not, not as well known um, uh, instrument, of course, you know, isn't as expensive. And right. um, so... I was very lucky to find that. It, it took me a long time to find it. I'd been searching all over Europe or wherever I was on tour. Um, I had a, a very nice instrument at the time, but it was a modern copy of, of a Strad made by Roland Ross, mm-hmm. which is now in Australia. I sold it to to a violinist who then moved to Australia. Oh. Um, and it was a very beautiful instrument, very even sounding. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't, I don't know, I just felt I needed more, more depth, more change in sound and character and colour mm-hmm. in order uh, to just, well, especially for solo recitals. Sure. And I'd just been, at the time, when I acquired the instrument, when I, when I was looking for it, I'd just been asked to, to record the, the solo Bach and I was thinking ah okay right so I need to get my act together and actually find the instrument that I could envisage doing this on and that that's what led me to to um, go on search so it did take a little bit bit of a bit of time so I I kept putting that recording off and then finally I found the instrument so okay go go red red light on (laughs) yeah 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 so for for people who don't know the difference between you know a modern violin and a baroque violin you know what like the gut strings and the different bow and everything could you kind of give a little quick explanation of the differences yes of course so um there are some some quite um uh, important structural differences uh one of those is inside the instrument which is called the bass bar so there's this piece of wood that that runs um underneath the bottom string of the instrument on any string instrument, and uh, in order to make the uh, the instrument more powerful, of course, that was then changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, because with the changes of style and music, what I find so fascinating is that the changes of the, the tools and the instrument, of course, goes and the bow. Not to forget the bow goes along with with the change in, in musical style. Um, so, in order to project in larger places, so not just in a uh, in a, a room at court or in a church or chapel or, um, and then of course possibly a cathedral even so you're now looking at a kind of salon or a, a, a kind of purpose-built concert room or hall recital hall and then bigger halls so in order to project more they needed to do something to to, to make the instruments just louder mm-hmm. 
Um, so that was one step at the base bar. But another big structural difference is also the angle of the neck to the body. So um, if you look at a modern instrument, you'll see that the angle of the neck to the body um, is acute. It kind of comes down from the body. So mm. you get more tension, of course, than on the strings. If you have the, if you envisage the, the, the span of the strings from the scroll over to the bridge to the tailpiece. And mm. um, so on older instruments, um, they would have a different kind of tension because the, the neck comes straight out of the instrument, straight out of the body. And that was changed basically in towards the end of the 18th century, that was changed. Mm -hmm. So it was a very exciting time where instrument makers and luthiers, they were experimenting. And I think it went very much hand in hand with players and with composers. Mm. Must have been so exciting. Yeah. Just imagine, you, you go to your luthier, it's a bit like having your own tailor. <laughs> right you get, get you wouldn't get your, your dress fitted or your, your suit or whatever you needed um but you'd, you'd go and kind of see how uh you know how this this luthier might adjust your instrument so that you could play in in a different way so that you could you could make more sound so you could be like everyone else who had these all these newfangled things that, that were you know being developed so oh i would love have been a flammable in one of those ateliers <laughs> just imagine so oh if we do that i wonder what happens you know it's a kind of just experimenting thing yeah yeah and right. so that so those are kind of the the biggest differences and of course the bridge um also changed um and the sound post as well so everything kind of got a little just had a little bit more uh more substance to it in order just to project more. Um, and then of course you have the strings as well, as you already mentioned, the gut strings. And I reckon at the beginning, um, well, in the 17th century or and before, things weren't quite so refined because the, you know, there, there wasn't the technology to produce the strings like, like we have today. Right, right. Um, but we do know how they made them. I mean, they basically kind of hang the gut, you know, sheet gut or, or uh, yeah, cow gut from the ceiling mm -hmm. and to let it stretch. Mm -hmm. And then depending on the kind of string you'd want, you'd get the kind of pieces twisted or, you know, whichever gauge, whichever thickness you needed. Um, and these days it's, it's such a refined practice, even though they're all, they, they do use the old techniques. Mm -hmm. um, you have lots of different ways of doing that. These days they tend to bleach them just, just to, change the color a little bit, <laughs> Depend, depending how purist you want to be. Some, a, a lot of players have have them unbleached um, as well. It doesn't seem to affect the sound quite so much. You can also have varnished strings as well if you're playing in a very high humidity area oh. um, or, you know, in the summer, mm -hmm. uh, strings break very quickly. Oh. Um, of course, that, that is something that you just have to live with. You have to kind of put up with when you're a, a Baroque instrument yeah. fanatic. Um, yeah, well, other changes. Well, the bow, of course, the bow changed its shape and also towards the end of the 18th century. And it adopted uh, the shape of, uh, well, basically what, you know, the, the way the modern bow looks like. Um, this was done by someone called Tourte in France, but the earlier shape looks a little bit like the old Concorde you know, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got that very kind of sharp edge. 
right. uh, kind of sliding, uh, tapering towards towards the end. Mm -hmm. And so the weight is distributed uh, towards the hand. Mm -hmm. So at the frog, that's where it's the heaviest. Mm -hmm. And that is not particularly heavy. It's much, much lighter than the modern bow. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when you get to the tip, it's very, very light. Mm -hmm. So you have this lovely kind of natural, beautiful tapering sound when you draw the bow across the string, mm -hmm. which gives you an immediate shape mm -hmm. sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very different from a modern bow, where you can kind of keep the sound to the end, which is then, of course, much more adept to the kind of cantabile kind of style of playing that, mm -hmm. that was then very much in favor at the time. So what kind of projects do you have coming up? Anything in the works, either with Breck and Baroque or the festival or the ensemble or, or with any other collaborators, things we can look forward to? Yes. Oh, lots and lots. Lots in the pipeline and lots has been going on. And actually, I feel, I must say, I feel very fortunate to have so many lovely musical connections with, with my colleagues and friends and also promoters and festivals up and down the country, you know, mm. through lockdown as well. I mean, it's... It was, of course, a, a huge shock to all of us, you know, where sure. just overnight everything was cancelled. Everything yeah. in the diary just said cancelled, cancelled, cancelled for, yeah. for about, you know, two, three, four months or so. Mm -hmm. um, but then at the same time, festivals were so inventive and mm -hmm. they they did things, well, like, like we're doing now, you right. know, kind of conversations online and um, just finding different ways to communicate to their audiences. Um, so I, I did lots of kind of recitals from my living room and and chats and and the you know playlists kind of favorite pieces just kind of keep people going they, they did some really lovely projects and yeah. so they kind of kept most of us musicians going really so, so some of those collaborations have come to fruition and so those recitals are then kind of now happening and will happen in the future and uh, some really nice new relationships have occurred through that, really, I must say, which might yeah. not have occurred before, you right. know. Right. And um, so that there's been good things, you know. There's always a silver lining, right? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> but I feel very lucky to have had those opportunities. And uh, well, uh, projects. So I've been. Um, uh, well, I've had the uh, fortune of playing a strad. Ooh. which belongs to the, the collection at the Royal Academy of Music in London. They have the most incredible instrument, uh, ancient instrument collection there. And uh, they offered um, me to, to um, borrow the Strad. And so we had it set up as close to a kind of classical setup as we could get without interfering with the actual instrument. Because if you open up a Strat, you can imagine what happens. Oh, it would lose yeah. most of its value. Right. Right. <laughs> it's tight, right? right. Um, so it's, you know, it's in its modern setup, basically, it, with the neck and, the, and mm -hmm. inside structurally. Um, but it's got a, a kind of classical tailpiece and bridge and things and gut strings. Mm -hmm. And that's a, such a joy. It's a um, wow. very, very beautiful instrument. Mm -hmm. It has lots and lots of colours. And it just kind of wants to play the later repertoire. You can just kind of tell Ooh. that it wants to do that. When yeah. was that instrument made? 1718 it was made 1718 wow what are you going to be playing on that and but do tell me the name of the instrument uh, yeah so it's called le morin oh 
so it has a nice name like a lot of these yeah. these beautiful strads from the golden period that so yeah. 1718 is bang in the middle of this kind of golden period which is amazing uh, right. that they have that instrument they have lots of other beautiful strats actually uh, along with their other uh, amazing collection of amatis and guaneris and galianos wow yeah yeah re really really fortunate to uh to be on the staff there because yes. then i you know luckily get to, to play some of these yeah. um i've also often borrowed different instruments from there when I've done, for instance, a project of all the, the Bieber mystery sonatas uh -huh. that, of course, are in different tunings. So you have to tune oh, right. the, the instruments, you know, in, in different kind of scordatura tunings. So you have different sonorities, mm -hmm. um, which is incredibly evocative in itself. I mean, that's that's a, a big kind of different subject. I could talk to you about that for hours and hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> next time <laughs> in order to perform those pieces it's it, that's very difficult to do on one instrument of course because oh, you know with the right. tuning changes right okay. and so i've been very blessed to be able to borrow some of the instruments uh, oh. and some of my my colleagues like my my keyboard player helps me carry all the instruments to the venues <laughs> it's quite difficult to get around yeah um, yeah, wow. but um, yes, yeah, so repertoire on this strat that we're doing. So so I've been um, uh, already made, one CD hasn't come out yet, but of Beethoven sonatas. Oh. With, yeah, with an Erhard piano, which also belongs to the Royal Academy okay. collection. They have a beautiful piano gallery there. Wow. And, and so we recorded one of them in lockdown, which was very exciting. So it was quite wow. nice to use part of lockdown to, yeah. to kind of get into those. Yeah, and we're going to be doing more of them, and there's quite a few concerts coming up too. Um, and there was also a very, very nice project of Mozart fragment completions, oh. and that came up quite recently, actually. It's and I'm just thinking if you wanted more information about that, and you know all the kind of the different rap, the, the different pieces on there. Um, if you wouldn't mind looking at um, the Channel Classics website, sure. Okay, because it'll be, be on there. But basically, what what that was about uh, is so so Mozart left a whole load of fragments, you know, ideas that he would jot down. The, the way we do shopping lists, right. I guess he was writing down <laughs> ideas of you know different themes, different different things that had appeared to him overnight, possibly, or maybe he'd get up in the night and write them down. Yeah. Um, but there are hundreds of these apparently. Wow. And lots of them are for, you know, instruments, yeah. not just operas. We, we know about the opera uh, kind of fragments and inc incomplete bits of, of arias and, and overtures and things. But um, sometimes there are like just maybe 15 bars, 20 bars, 30 bars of, you know, a tune with a violin and piano. Well, he doesn't always say violin and piano, but a lot of it looks like it, it would be, you know, you can just tell from that. Right how he uses the, the staves and, and the figurations. Anyway, this amazing professor called Timothy Jones, who's a, a Mozart scholar, expert, and probably knows every note that Mozart composed. He had a little fun and he, he basically just experimented with these fragments and completed them. Wow. And he did four different completions. And we recorded two of each movement, just to, to show the listener. So it could it could have gone like this, but it could have gone like this. Wow. 
And it's just a really, really interesting because he also pushes the boat out a little bit because uh-huh. he's sometimes engaging with the thought, oh, Mozart could have gone there. We might have done that. Sure. You know, which is, you know, who, who could think in that way? I mean, yeah. I, I think it's really, really incredible. Uh-huh. And it's very convincing. I have been speaking on Zoom with acclaimed award-winning violinist Rachel Podger about Breck and Baroque Festival, its offshoot ensemble, and most importantly, her life and really amazing career as a Baroque violin player and teacher. Thank you so much. What a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Well, thank you for hearing me out with everything. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I can't wait to talk with you again. We have so much more we can talk about. Absolutely.